Welcome to Season 2 of the Basics of Life Conversations with Rob Salvato. The answers that most people have regarding these issues are a little too easy, a little too smug, um, almost too packaged, without really thinking through the issues. You know, um, you know, there was a time in church history when Christians were known as great thinkers, great philosophers. Today on the Basics of Life Conversations, my guest is one of my favorite Bible teachers, Pastor Skip Heitzig of Calvary Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. In this conversation, we are discussing Pastor Skip's brand new book entitled The Biography of God. I recently read this book, and Pastor Skip did a masterful job in writing it in a way that is informative, weighty, and yet very palatable, very relatable, with great application on the subject of who God is and how he can be known. And so now, here is my conversation with Pastor Skip Heitzig. Well, welcome to the conversation, Pastor Skip. I'm glad to be with you, Rob. It's great to connect again for after so long— and after such a crazy crisis that the world has gone through and is still on the tail end of. So yes. I'm, I'm glad we can fellowship like this. Yeah, absolutely. It's so great to hear your voice. And I'm so excited to be talking with you about this new book that you've written called The Biography of God. And I just have to ask you, what inspired you to attempt writing about a topic as big as The Biography of God? Yeah, it's a, it's a funny title, in fact. Um, my friend Erwin Lutzer, who used to pastor the Moody Bible Church, uh, said, well, it's about time somebody got around to writing God's biography. <laughs> he said that tongue-in-cheek. But i tell you why I was inspired, is that the issue of God is the most important issue in the world. I mean, nothing is more consequential than the idea, are we alone in the universe? Is, is there something or someone out there? And I remember um, years ago uh, reading what Mortimer J. Adler said, and he was the um, editor-in-chief of Encyclopedia Britannica. He said, there's more consequences for life that follow from this one issue than any other issue. And, and because there's so many different ideas about God from different sources, um, I think everybody has dealt with it in, in, in films or songs or some form of expression that I wanted to give, I wanted to consider those, I wanted to give evidence for what I believe is the biblical ideal of God, and, um, and I, wanted to, um, I wanted to challenge certain people, and I wanted to equip other people. Well, I think you did an incredible job at that, and I love the way that this book has been put together, and it's um, a very easy read. It's not too lofty, but at the same time, it's very, very rich, and it's just very, very full. Um, I wanted to ask you, though, in taking on this project, what was maybe, what did you find to be the most maybe surprising thing about God, or did you maybe learn anything new or unexpected as you were kind of studying for this project? Yeah, um, I, I did. Um, I think, and, and you know, I, you and I both, you know, we, we read the Scripture, we teach the Scripture, we deal with scriptural issues for, for, what, for our living. That's what we do. So, so I've spent a lot of time in the biblical text, and I guess what surprises me, on one hand, 
you know, like Isaiah said, you're a God that hides himself. You know, so a lot of people say, well, you know, God could be more apparent. I think he is apparent. But but uh, above all that, I think it's God's almost obsession with wanting a relationship with us. That is his willingness to establish a relationship, to walk with us in fellowship, and to give us access to him. You know, the fact that he not only created things and created people, but he pursues them. Mm-hmm. All the way back to, to um, the Genesis account, when Adam was in the garden, and it says that God was walking with him in the cool of the day. Right. And, um, and, and so, uh, you know, this idea that God isn't just there, God is pursuing people. He's pursuing a lost world. And that struck David. David in the Psalms said, what is man that you were even mindful of him or the son of man that you would visit him? So um, and, and, and even, Rob, to the point where when, when God's own people repeatedly go astray and repeatedly spurn him and repeatedly sin against him, he repeatedly goes after them. And so the classic period of Israeli history, the period of the judges, where every man did what is right in his own eyes, and it was complete anarchy. You know, you have these, the story of several cycles. We call it the sin cycle. And, and how God's heart was moved every time they cried out in desperation. You know, he let them go into captivity. He let them get conquered by their enemies time and time again. But without fail, every time they cried out to him, um, he reached out to them and delivered them time and time again that that it, to me is striking yeah and, and i when you're talking what you know comes to my mind is is even the story of jonah where god you know calls this prophet to go and preach to this city jonah doesn't want to go and it wasn't like there were no other prophets that god could send jonah runs away and god pursues him in a very dramatic fashion you know to get him yeah. where he wanted him to go that is the the beautiful thing about uh, yeah, I, love, I love that story i was called jonah a non-profit organization he didn't want to you know he sort of handed <laughs> in his resignation that's but great to me the best one of the best examples as well as jonah is hosea Yes. Where God said, "I'm I'm going to make you a living example of my love to these people, and you you're you're going to marry a prostitute. She's going to be unfaithful to you. She's going to go out on you, and when she's out with other lovers, I want you to feed her, take care of her, and then bring her back into your home and care for her because that's the kind of love I have for these errant people." Yeah, that's incredible. Love that story as well. Now, Skip, why is it important? For us to know who God is, or in, in other words, why does it matter that we move past these preconceived notions or versions of, you know, God that we had maybe when we were growing up? Why is it so important that we really know who God is? Um, I'll, I'll speak from personal experience as well as what I've, I've observed. The answers that most people have regarding these issues are a little too easy, a little too smug, um, almost too packaged. Mm. Without really thinking through the issues, you know, um, you know, there was a time in church history when Christians were known as great thinkers, great philosophers, and um, and could engage on a number of these issues. So we we in this culture, you know, this is the culture of the soundbite. This is the culture of the 140 character tweet, and and you don't get past that, unfortunately. And it's important to really know who God is. Uh, because people have deeper issues and questions 
and nuance than that. You know, I think pretty much people have created God in their image. They base their idea on God uh, upon their imagination rather than God's revelation. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's like that story you've heard and probably told in your sermons, Rob, about a kid drawing. In, uh, there, It was an art class. Everybody had to draw whatever they wanted to draw. And little Johnny was working away while everybody was done, and the teacher said, Johnny, what are you drawing? He says, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, well, you can't do that. Nobody knows what God looks like. And Johnny very confidently said, they will when I'm done. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and, so good. And I think that people just sort of are content with their own little picture that they draw of God. So in this book, I'm not trying to pull a Johnny. When I call it the biography of God, I'm trying to just say I'm a fellow traveler, and um, I have looked at the 40 authors in 66 books, the non-fictional narrative uh, that the Bible is, and this is how God presents himself, and it's a pretty compelling uh, revelation. Absolutely. And, you know, I think about John chapter 17, verse 3, where it says, and this is eternal life, that you would know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. And so the whole aspect, the whole idea of eternal life, which, you know, the Jewish people looked at as not just a longevity of life, but a quality of life, it really begins with knowing God and, and knowing him in relationship. Now, you, you talk about in the book the general revelation of God and how we can know God like through creation, but we really can't know him through creation. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? Yeah. Um, God, we, you know, in, in theological parlance, we say that God reveals himself generally and then specially or specifically. And generally, uh, through his, his works, his creation, like an artist, you can an art an artist produces art, and you can tell a lot about the the artist's choice of color, choice of presentation, how he or she works with a knife or a brush or a palette. Um, if they like big or small, if, what kind of subjects they like. You can tell a lot about what impacts that person. So, um, uh, yeah, you can't know God personally, but you can you can tell a lot about him by the attributes that are are displayed. Uh, you tell a lot about his power. You you can't really tell uh, about his his the the nuance of the depth of his love, but you can tell that he obviously loves um, uh, his creation enough to create a pretty balanced biosphere for creatures to exist in. So yeah, you you can tell certain things up to a point, but you can't tell everything until you go deeper, and that is uh, the s- turning the coin, the second part of Revelation, which is special revelation, where all of that is revealed. Mm-hmm. Now, in the book, you really cover some other pretty lofty concepts, including the different proofs of God's existence. And, and how do we take those complex theological concepts off the shelf, as it were, and give them hands and feet? In other, in other words, does that knowledge have practical value for us? Yeah, I thank you for asking that, because I, de- I debated uh, in this approach. I, I knew that I had to cover some of these issues, and I know that some of these are topics that not the average bear necessarily reads. Right. Um, but there are enough people who do read that or do question that, and um, I just saw the value from early on as a believer of having uh, good answers 
um, because I noticed, like, when I was a young Christian and I was growing in my faith, and I was in a setting in Southern California where all of my professors were either agnostic or atheist. They were all um, medical professional science scientists, and, uh, and and they had some of them had pretty good questions, and I had really bad answers. And I thought, I wonder if there are good answers to these good questions. And of course, I found there are great answers to those questions. So I wanted to be able to equip the believer with with answers to questions, even philosophical questions that people have. Um, uh, I, I remember reading a book, a pretty famous book by Dostoevsky called The Brothers uh, Karmanazov. I think that's how you pronounce it. But there, there's a line in that book by Dostoevsky where he says, if there is no God, then everything is permitted. Mm. You know, so that, that once again becomes the central issue of life, the compelling issue. Is there or is there not a God? Because if there is no God, then every you can do anything. Everything is permitted. So, um, you know, what I try to do is I kind of approach in this book, I start with the idea, is, is there a God? Yep. If there is a God, how can I be sure there's a God? If there's a God that I can be sure that exists, can that God be known? And then beyond that, can I? is it possible to have a personal relationship with with this God? So I, I, then I work my way through some of those arguments, those lofty arguments that you mentioned, like the ontological, um, which is pure philosophy approach, the cosmological, which is uh, an a, a argument from origins, um, cause and effect, the teleological argument, which is the argument from design. For example, there's a difference between rocks on the side of the road and Mount Rushmore. You know, yes. Mount Rushmore looks like it's been designed. By, by a designer, by an artist. And so um, I, I, there's enough of that kind of proof in the universe to lead us uh, to, the, to the footprint or the, ha- the handprint of God in it. And then finally, the moral law, which um, I found interesting. You know, I, I was never persuaded by the argument of the moral law a whole lot, but I know a lot of people, especially those with great scientific backgrounds like Francis Collins, who founded the DNA uh, project. Uh, he was an, uh, an an atheist, but he said it was uh, C.S. Lewis's argument on the moral law that brought me to Christ. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, uh, you know, the moral law is basically this: everybody has a moral compass, even the atheist. Um, right. And so, uh, so this is why we look at the world and we say, why is there such evil that exists? The only reason you would ask that question is because you have some kind of moral compass that says. There is good and there is evil, and and so I I just try to work my way through those arguments without getting too bogged down, and I try to do things to keep the reader you know not only engaged but um, understanding this so they can use that in the future. Yeah, well, you nailed it. You hit it out of the park on the way you put that all together. It was really really well done. Now, my my favorite. Um, section of the book was the the part where you dealt with the holiness of God. And you actually make the statement, you refer to the holiness uh, or God's holiness as his most unpopular attribute. Why did you say that? What did you mean by that? Well, um, okay, so look at it this way. Perfection doesn't have a huge attraction. If you see a perfect person without any flaws, they're not really liked right away. 
That's so um, true. You know, and that's, see, we are flawed people, and we know that. And nobody likes to be shown up. So if you think of social media, social media is all about uh, presenting yourself as your ideal self. Here I am with important people. Here I am traveling the world in this environment. We use photo filters to soften the look of acne or wrinkles and, and, and not give away our age. So we're, we're always trying to present ourselves better than we are. So um, that, that's why when people deal with God, they often deal superficially with God. They want to picture um, or portray God by um, feel-good attributes, things that make me feel important. Um, and nothing that really challenges our shortcomings. But the holiness of God does exactly that. Um, and understanding God's holiness is what helps uh, us understand God's judgment. There's a reason that God uh, is wrathful. Uh, there's a reason that God allows hell to exist, and that can only be fully understood when we get some kind of handle on His holiness. And by the way, God is called holy in the Scripture far more than he is ever called loving, far more than he is ever called gracious, far more than he is even called mighty. Even though he is all of those things, he is supremely holy. And so, um, bottom line is holiness is important because holiness, God's holiness assures us that his actions are going to be perfect actions. His actions are going to be just. Because God is holy, God can only be fair. Now, Skip, it, it seems to me that in in the church world today, holiness is not something that a lot of pastors want to talk about. Why do you think that is? I, I think they are afraid that people will be turned off by it. They'll see it as an antiquated ideology. Uh, nobody, they think that their job. Pastors sometimes feel their job is to get people to like them mm. or to convince uh, people that the Church believers' Christianity is as cool and hip as the world. So they try to, they almost try to compete with the world. We want to have an environment that's kind of a worldly environment. We want to have a message that doesn't offend anybody because we want you to come back. But I think people come to, I think the average bear, the average unbeliever comes to church expecting there to be a difference. Uh, otherwise, why come? I mean, if it's going to be the same that you can get anywhere, why why go to, to that church? So um, I think that when they hear truth, and, and it's truth spoken in love, and it can be done. You can strike the balance. But um, I, I, I've always thought that people are up for a challenge. I remember just back in school, when I was in high school, not even a, a believer, when I had teachers that um, prompted us to do better by challenging us to do better and, and kind of giving us the equipment and tools to do it, I always thrive better in those classes than just kind of a mealy-mouthed, fun teacher who was our friend but never really taught us anything. It was, it was a total waste of time. Yeah. And really, understanding God's holiness and justice is very much connected to understanding his, his love and his grace and his mercy, right? Can you kind of unpack that for us a little bit? Yes. Um, you know, when—so I'll, I'll tell you the book that kind of sums that up for me is Romans. You know, mm -hmm. Paul talks, introduces the gospel in the book of Romans, but then he immediately paints the 
darkest background possible by in chapter one, I think around verse 18, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So he, he goes into a whole several chapter diatribe painting the black picture of the wrath of God. And he does that so that he can, when he turns the light on and paints the bright light of the grace of God, it's more noticeable, which he does a few chapters later. The second part of the book of Romans is all about God's grace and how he's there to forgive sin. So, you know, when you talk about God forgiving sin, when you talk about being um, given the promise of heaven, all of that is just sort of pie in the sky until you understand you don't deserve it. In fact, you, under, you, you and I deserve an eternal, painful hell. Mm-hmm. And, and when that is understood, then the grace of God just becomes that much more dramatic. And, and where is it that we see probably the clearest connection between God's holiness, his justice, and his love and his grace, like colliding all together? Well, I see it everywhere in the text. I see it a lot in the Scripture, you know. Uh, I, I just mentioned the book of Romans, yeah. you know, the wrath of God versus the grace of God. Um, you know, uh, there's so many uh, verses in that book that talk about, look, this is what you deserve, but while you were sinners, he died for you. You right. know, there you, there you are, you know, it's, you have the black and then the white. Yeah, it's at Calvary, right? It's, uh, it's at the cross yeah. where we see, you know, God's not winking at sin. He's not, you know, just letting sin go by, but he's judging sin, but he's doing it as he's judging his son who's dying in our place. And I think, you know, it's there that we see, um, you know, where John said that we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And I think the biggest and best picture of that is what happens at Calvary. Um, yeah, no doubt. You, you think about Jesus, uh, I think when he turned to the thief on the cross or the insurrectionist on the cross, I think he could not wait to say, today you will be with me in paradise. That uh, that was, you know, here he was taking that man's sin on himself and that man realizing, even though in a small degree, that that was happening. And that little glimmer of trust and faith in Jesus and that Jesus could turn to him and say, you will be with me in paradise. Just, man, that's dramatic. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the other things that I felt was so practical in this book was the way that you dealt with the the subject of evil. And, you know, the problem of evil remains one of the biggest stumbling blocks to faith. How do you address that important issue? Well, um, it's always a big issue. It's always a, it's always a topic of conversation, if, if you were to take the top five questions or, or um, reasons people don't believe, that would that'd be up there, the problem of evil. Mm-hmm. And, and it kind of goes like this, if God is so perfect, like you say, then why is his world so messed up? I mean, you know, it happened under his administration. If something bad happens under a presidential administration, you know, every administration always blames the previous one. Right. So... This happened under God's administration. If the world is so perfect, then, or, or if God is perfect, then why is his, his, his creation so goofy? And, um, uh, you know, th- that's been debated through, I mean, for thousands of years, all the way back to, like, Epicurus, you know, uh, before Christ, you know. Uh, he basically said if there's a God, then he's uh, either um, 
uh, impotent, can't do anything, or he's unwilling to do anything. So the biblical God, the God of the Bible, the God revealed in Scripture, is loving, perfect, all-knowing, and all-powerful, which means he could, if he wanted to, destroy evil. And yet, (laughs) evil exists. Massive evil exists. Suffering exists. And so the unbeliever says, therefore, if, and those things are true. You say that God of the Bible is perfect, all-knowing, all-loving, but massive suffering exists. Therefore, the biblical God must not exist. Um, but I love how C.S. Lewis um, put it. C.S. Lewis said, if the universe is so bad, how did people ever attribute it to a loving God? How is that possible? that anyone ever in history could come up with the idea that a loving God created this world if it's so bad. So um, this is how the believer answers that. Number one, God did not create evil, but God did create the potentiality of evil, Mm. the possibility of evil. And that's the risky business of giving his crowning creation free will. So we have the power of volition, and that's very risky, because we can choose good or we can choose evil. So God didn't create evil, but he did create the potentiality of it. So it's our choices that create the evil. And God can't destroy that evil unless God also destroys free will. If God destroyed free will, then he's destroying the greatest possibility of all moral good— so that means that God wouldn't be loving. Um, and then there's a second part that I think the Christian would answer that and say, what looks like evil can be also used for good. So we have to be very careful when we say, why do bad things happen to good people? Because Romans 8.28 says, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So sometimes God can use what is apparently bad um, to make something incredibly good. And, and the example I like to use is uh, sodium chloride. Pure sodium will kill you. Pure chlorine will kill you. They're poisons. They'll destroy life. But if you combine them in just the right combination, sodium chloride is table salt. And it can enhance the flavor of food. It can be beneficial. So God can take things that are apparently bad and in the right combination, you know, putting you in the oven at just the right temperature, uh, putting you, giving you just the right ingredients in life, though they hurt, though they're painful, can affect incredible good. That's why that promise is so beautiful. All things work together for mm. good to the love God. Love that. Now, Skip, your final chapter is entitled How to Be God's Friend. Why do you believe that God is interested in friendship with us? And then the second follow-up to that is, how do we find the balance then between being God's friend but still revering him as almighty God? You know, sometimes I'll hear people talk about, you know, I was hanging out with my homeboy, you know, and they're talking about, they're talking about God, you know, or talking about the, the big guy in the sky, and it's like there's no reverence whatsoever, but at the same time, especially when it's a new believer, it's like you, you're touched a little bit by the, you know, somewhat intimacy they've embraced with God is their friend, but where do, and how do we strike that balance in all of that? Yeah, I, you know, Rob, I remember hearing early on when people, before I was a believer, and people said, yeah, me and God, and I have a personal relationship with God. It just sounded, 
I, and I, I mean, I understand it now, but then to my ears, it just sounded a little bit too familiar. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, um, like I don't know if that's going to happen or possible, but uh, that that I addressed that. That's the last chapter of my book, and I, I wanted to end on that because that's the most amazing, mind blowing truth: is that the God of the universe, the Creator of all, the God of Scripture, actually wants to be our friend. Like Jesus even said to his disciples, um, he said he was their Lord. Uh, he claimed to be God, but he said, "I don't call you my servants; I call you my friends." So the God of Scripture wants to be your friend, and I know that sounds like a, a like the ultimate oxymoron because usually friends are on the same level; they have they have so much in common. Um, what do we have in common with God? He's the Creator; we're the creature. Uh, God is perfect; we're imperfect. God has all those attributes like omniscience, omnipotence. We don't. Uh, God is invisible. We're, we have to have a relationship with people in the vis- visible world. Mm-hmm. So um, whatever relationship, a friendship we're going to have with God, is going to be different than one we have with people, just because you can't see God. Right. So Abraham was called in the Bible the friend of God. And I, I kind of unpacked Genesis 18, where he and, I believe, uh, one of the persons in the, in the text is God himself. And um, there we find that not only did Abraham believe God and worship God, uh, but he obeyed God. And these are some key elements in having a friendship with this God. You have to believe what he says. You worship him as God. So that's the reverence aspect. And then you do what he says. You obey him. And so when it comes to a personal relationship with God, where a creature and his creator are going to be friends, uh, the key element in, in that relationship is going to be humility. That's mm. that's vital to a friendship with God, because he is so much greater than we are. And like you said, we must revere him. We must honor him. We The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, beginning of knowledge. So um, uh, that that will then, that'll lead you, uh, when you have that kind of humility and reverence, that leads you to uh, control uh, who you are or obey him. Uh, is a better way to say that, because Jesus said, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. So the friendship we're going to have with God is one which ultimately we, we respond to his commands, whether we like them or not. Hmm. That's good. Now, I want to follow that up with, with this, because you know there are pastors and leaders who will listen to this um, program and podcast, and I think you know, for you and I, we've been brought up in a church culture and church movement that really, really emphasized grace. You know, mm-hmm. Pastor Chuck, he wrote the book, How Grace Changes Everything, and I know I'm very thankful for that emphasis. Uh, I live so much of my Christian experience in trying to earn God's favor, but I, at the same time, I do feel like as a pastor and leader, and I'd love for you to kind of speak maybe to a pastor or a leader that would be hearing this, that how do we foster a heart and maybe an attitude in our churches that keeps us in a place where we still are, you know, we're preaching grace, but we're still giving place and emphasis to emphasize, you know, that idea of reverencing God and, and keeping that reverence from him. Sometimes it feels like to me that can be a, a tension, you know, 
in in the church today, in our modern day church and the way that we do things. Can, can you give any insight to that? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I love the way you just put that. I think I think if I was in your congregation, I heard you address what you just said. That would be, I would understand where you're coming from. That would be helpful to me because you basically said, look, God is a God of love and grace and he's willing to forgive you at the same time. It's, you know, here's his character, here's his nature. And, 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 okay, so I, that would make me feel greatly comforted, you know, that you care about, mm. about that and that you care about how I feel and how I see it, but you also care to protect the integrity of the personality of God whom you serve and that you're not going to dumb that down for me or, or um, take that away. And, um, you know, it's sort of like I was uh, reading in 1 Samuel, where God gives a message to young Samuel about Eli, the priest, who's old, and his sons are corrupt, and it's a message of judgment on them, and the old man kind of has a hunch that it's not going to be good, the message that this kid has from God for me. But he says, tell me everything, hide nothing. You know, he, he wanted to hear the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help him God. And I think one of the most loving things a pastor can do is to tell his congregation the whole truth. Yes. And you and I um, were raised in a, an incredible roots and environment where Pastor Chuck constantly told us that we should give people the whole counsel of God and teach all the Bible. And he was such a master yeah. at going through the biblical text from Genesis to Revelation. I listen to him now and going, how did he do that? I mean, that I was masterful, yeah. and he did it in a way that I could understand it back then. I mean, when I was 18, I understood it, because he just made it so uh, not only understandable, he made God attractive. Yeah. I wanted to know more about God, because he was, Chuck was so happy, and he had that 500-watt smile, you know, mm -hmm. when he come into a room, and that laugh, and what he would talk on some very serious subjects, but it always made me feel good and feel safe with, with God, that God was safe and that God was trustworthy and that because God was just and holy, that it was going to be okay because he knows everything. You know, he just always lifted up God and told me the truth about every subject, but always magnified the sovereignty of God, the personality of God, the attributes of God, so that I always walked away feeling even if it was an unnerving subject, I always felt safe. Yeah, love that. I love that. That's a great, great way that you put that. Um, now, Pastor Skip, we, we love to end our uh, interviews, these conversations with what we call rapid-fire questions, just you know, looking for kind of some one- to two-minute answers here. Are you up for that? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. All right. So first question is, what is the most impactful book other than the Bible that you've read in the last 12 months, and why was it so impactful to you? Ooh, that's, that's a hard one. Um, so um, I'm reading a book right now called Empty Planet. Uh, this is a secular book, but uh, I'll, I'll read, I read, I, I try to stay broadly read. Yeah. But so this is a book about, uh, it's by a group of demographers who are looking at the population on planet Earth and saying that there's coming a time very soon where it's not going to increase because we've seen an exponential increase mm -hmm. um, over the past several centuries. But it's going to actually plateau and then decrease um, 
you know, barring any catastrophe, pretty precipitously. So I just found that that's an interesting concept because I live on Earth. Um, I'm kind of nice to know what's what they think is going to happen. That's one. But the, by far, more than that, the book that that uh, has impacted me the most is a book that isn't even released yet, but it will be, and everybody should read it. It's called Enemies and Allies by my friend Joel Rosenberg. Mm. And it's about what's going on in the Middle East. It's about all the countries that are on the news right now with Iran, with Turkey, uh, with the alliances that are going on. With And there's a lot of behind-the-scenes reporting that Joel has done, because he lives in Jerusalem. Right. And he has he just wrote this book, and it's going to be released soon, but it couldn't be more timely. And, and to get the perspective of the Middle East, not only from a biblical, but a geopolitical right now happening is is the most impactful book I've read in a long time. Okay, I can't wait, wait to read that one. Is it um, along the lines of his book, The Epicenter, or is it more along the lines of one of his novels? It's not a novel. It's more along the lines of Epicenter. It's it's kind of, it, it's un, it's he's led delegations of pastors and, and or leaders uh, to different Muslim countries and will tell you about those conversations that we had with Mohammed bin Salman, mm. with the head of the United Arab Emirates, with what's going on in Jordan, Egypt, the state of Christianity, the state of Islam in these countries, what's changing in the Middle East, the Abraham Accords. So it, it's uh, not fiction. It's um, okay. It's uh, a news report. Do you know when that's coming out? Uh, it will come out, I believe, at the end of summer. Okay. All right. Awesome. Hopefully we'll still be here. Well, actually, maybe, maybe not hopeful that we'll still be here, but uh, if we're still here, that would be great to read. Um, you know, Skip, it's been said that every pastor needs a hobby. What's yours? I, I, I love uh, bicycling. I love motorcycling. I love photography. These are things I've done since I was a little kid. It's funny because I said to my wife the other day, I really haven't changed that much, have I? I mean, all the things I did when you met me, and I did before I met you, I still do. I still love photography. I love uh, exploring the photograph, the black and white photograph. I did a lot of darkroom work when it wasn't digital. Now I do digital photography. I, I love to capture that as an art form. I love tinkering on motorcycles, and I've built and sold several. And uh, I love bicycling. So those are three of my hobbies. Now, for bicycling, are you road biking or mountain biking or both? I do both. I did mountain biking for years, and then I stopped doing that. I got rid of my mountain bike, went to all road biking, and then I, after a long time, said, you know, I miss mountain biking. So I, I reinvested in a mountain bike, and I do both. All right. That's great. Love that. Who has been um, or had the biggest impact on your life and ministry? Well, uh, Billy Graham would be number one. He led me to Christ. Um, it it was in the summer of 1973 in San Jose, California. Uh, I had the great honor of um, meeting Dr. Graham uh, after that and getting to know him, going to his house even, and uh, having meals with he and his family, got to know his son Franklin. So um, his integrity and walk with the Lord, first and foremost, because he led me to Christ. Uh, second would have to be Chuck Smith, because of his Bible teaching and uh, his role as a pastor. He still impacts and influences me to this day. Uh, I would say men like J.I. Packer, uh, John Stott, uh, men that I've read, men that I've met, men that I've had meals with. Mm. And, um, you know, all of these, the men that I just, all the men that I just mentioned, 
have struck me, not because of their writing or their evangelism, but their personal character. Mm, um, given, given all that they have done, accomplished, and know, so humble and so curious about you. And um, it, it, I, I, it almost made me feel weird. So I, I just, I'll stop with those people. There's several others, of course, that have uh, impacted me, but, but th- those have kind of impacted me more than, than most. Okay. Now, when you think of the church as a whole in America, what are you most excited about? Hmm. Well, um, I am excited that a whole new generation emerges, that God always has his remnant, God always has his man, uh, his men and women behind the scenes working hard, and uh, new expressions of churches, uh, fresh church planters going out uh, all over the country. Um, uh, that, that excites me. And, and even last night, my wife said uh, at our midweek Bible study, she said, did you notice how many young people, young couples, I've just noticed she said more than 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 I have in a long time, you know, that are coming to, to uh, and, I, and that's always exciting to me, that, that kind of transformation and interest. Amen. And then finally, what is your biggest burden for the church in America? Uh, my, my biggest burden for the church in America is that, and sort of, that's why, uh, it's sort of a two-edged sword. You know, the last answer I gave is also my concern. I love what I see with with uh, the young trends, the church planners, the new generation. But what I'm afraid of is that there's a lack of exposition, that it's it's all about dazzle rather than depth. It's all about showmanship rather than substance. And it becomes where we're we're in love with technology, not theology. Mm. And those those are concerns to me. Um, um you know it, it's I almost feel when I listen, if I were to compare a sermon today with a sermon a hundred years ago, an average sermon today and an average sermon a hundred years ago, there'd be miles apart. Oh, they'd yeah. be oceans apart. And I think we feel like today that we have to take intellect away, and and that that everybody's an idiot, and, and we got to kind of treat them like idiots. So I mean, the average youth group, you know, just sounds sort of like. I'm going to a kindergarten class, um, and I don't know why, because when I was in high school, I was studying subjects like physics and history, and my teachers weren't easy on me. They weren't trying to, you know, just get me to understand some vapid subject without substance. They drilled down and made you understand stuff and gave me an hour lecture. Right. So I don't know why we think that, that, that our kids aren't up to it or our congregations aren't up to it. Um, so that's my concern. I could go on and on and on about yeah. this, but I've had conversations with pastors all over the country who who uh, would probably say the same thing. Yeah, I share that concern. And I think part of it is, you know, we're told that in this sound sound bite culture that we live in, you know, that people's attention spans are only so big. And But yeah. at the same time, I agree with what you said earlier, that you, when you were in school, you wanted to be challenged. And I think yeah. that there is a generation that wants to be challenged. And so if we challenge them in that way, and we're bringing, you know, the Word of God in a way that is clear and, and it's, you know, uh, not dummied down, but is you know clear that they're, they're into that. They're drawn to that. Not 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 everybody, but there's there's a remnant that 
is, and I think there that remnant is is really a hope for the church of the next generation because you know the the body of Christ can't live on cotton candy and well said, amen. Yeah, I'll, I I agree with that. In fact, I'll leave. Let me just piggyback and say that you can a pastor can actually create an environment where people will tolerate more and more sound doctrine. I had a pastor call me and say, uh, my board makes me preach like 15-minute sermons, and they're kind of milky, and and I really want to teach through the Word, and I want to do exposition, but I, I can't. And they tell me that the congregation won't stand it. And I said, 15 minutes? Yeah. I can't, clear, I can't even clear my throat in 15 minutes, let alone teach yeah. a, a sermon. So um, I said, if you were to you can actually condition them to love it so much that if you were to give them 15-minute sermons, that's when they'd walk out. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I got saved and and was at Costa Mesa when Richard Semino was my high school pastor. And, I mean, he would spend an hour, you know, taking us through the Word, but it developed in a whole bunch of us. And I think from the time that I graduated over about a 10-year, I think he was there nine years, and over that nine-year span, I counted over a hundred people that came through that youth group that went into full-time ministry, whether it was pastors or missionaries or, you know, that type of thing. And the youth group probably never got bigger than 300 people um, in that nine-year span. So I don't know if that was, you know, maybe a thousand kids that went through and a hundred of them went into full-time ministry. And many of them are pastors to this day, guys, you know, like Jim Gallagher and, um, you know, John Wang, myself, uh, a whole bunch of guys that came through that, but he challenged us. And, and it was so different from, you know, what anybody else had done prior to him being there. And it really gave all of us, I think, a real hunger for the word of God. And so I, I just think that that's something that we need to not put aside, even though we see today, like you're saying, the popular thing is to be able to, you know, the lights, it's the glam, it's the, you know, action, it's all of this. And, and I think, you know, there can be a place for that, but there's got to be substance that goes with yeah. it. So Yeah, you, you could have both. I mean, yeah. you could have a great worship and a lot of fun you can do all that but just keep make sure that you like you said add the substance yeah absolutely well skip thanks so much for taking the time and being on the program and i just want to say that i am just so thankful for you i think you're one of the best bible expositors that is alive right now and i just am so blessed by your ministry um, I love to read the transcripts that you put. I'm a reader more than a listener, so I love to read the transcripts that you put through, put out a lot of times for your messages, and um, just really am encouraged by what you do. Well, I'm humbled by that. Thank you so much, Rob. And again, thank you. You've been you've been at this a long time. You've been faithful teaching the Bible, getting God's truth out to congregations. So thank you for that. Yeah, appreciate that. Love love what we get to do. Amen? Amen. That's right. All right. Thanks, Pastor Skip. Thank you for listening to the Basics of Life Conversations with Rob Salvato. 
where Rob hosts interviews about culture, life, and ministry. You can find more Christ-centered content at goodlion.io. If you're encouraged by today's conversation, please share it with a friend, leave us a review, or give us a rating on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Also, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. We have some incredible conversations for season two that you're not going to want to miss here on the Basics of Life Conversations.